Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, part of the NCTCFP's January 2022 Clinician Cafe on providing care to family planning clients with disabilities, we'll be discussing the specific needs and challenges clinicians may encounter in providing care to adolescents with disabilities. Our guest today is Erica Monasterio, MN, FNPBC. She's a clinical professor emerita at the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing. Outside of her clinical and university work, Erica has provided numerous trainings for healthcare and social service professionals to increase their knowledge base, sensitivity, and skills in working with adolescents and young adults. Through her collaborative work with community-based organizations on projects at the local, state, and national level, Erica currently provides training and technical assistance in the areas of sexual and reproductive health, healthy sexuality for adults and youth with disabilities, adult and adolescent relationship abuse, minor consent and confidentiality, and the care of LGBTQ plus youth. Welcome to the podcast, Erica. We're so excited to have you on today. First, for our listeners, can you provide a working definition of disability, including physical disability versus a cognitive or developmental disability? So what sounds like a simple question to start with is actually kind of complex, but a great place to start. Because of the impact of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the legal definition is very important. So the legal definition is a person with a disability is someone who has a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And many benefits and access to programs are based in this definition. So it's important to keep it in mind, but it's a very medicalized definition of disability. And it really views disability as an impairment that needs to be fixed. The social model definition of disability is that the problem is really that societal barriers, both physical and attitudinal, prevent people from living their fullest lives. So it shifts the focus from the individual who may have some differences in abilities, development, etc., and really looks at how do we as a society respond to those different needs. We look at disabilities often from the perspective of what's visible, such as mobility disabilities. You see the equipment, the walker, the wheelchair, the unusual gait, etc. But there are many invisible disabilities as well, such as mental health challenges. Sometimes cognitive or intellectual disability will not be particularly visible if the individual sort of looks like what you would expect a typically developing person to look like. These classifications are important particularly things like developmental disability, which implies an early onset of a disability in childhood, even or in the prenatal period, acquired disabilities, which might be related to a traumatic head injury or chronic condition that limits mobility or even aging. And age of onset, all of these things make a big difference as relates to access to supports and services. So having a clear understanding of these different classifications is really important in providing services. Thank you for that. And now that we have a working definition, what are some of the incorrect assumptions that clinicians might have about their adolescent clients with disabilities? 
I think one of the big ones is the tendency to underestimate ability. As healthcare providers, we are taught to sort of lump, group, and categorize. And so when you have this lumping and grouping of, quote, people with disabilities, it leads one to kind of treat all people, regardless of their disability, the same. Whereas each individual with a disability has specific needs for accommodation. So there's this tendency to sort of just underestimate the individual's ability. There's a tendency to defer to parents, both information giving and information sharing and decision making. Now, this happens with all adolescents. It's not unique to youth with disabilities, but it's particularly marked for youth with disabilities. There's the assumption of a lack of capacity, lack of capacity for decision making, lack of capacity for understanding, lack of capacity to reason. And this, again, there are clients who may have limited capacity. There are many clients who have strengths and capacities in many different areas. Remember, the bar is pretty low. In the state of California, some services, such as pregnancy-related care, are open to individual youth or child decision-making at any age. And where there is an age limitation, the age is usually 12. Now, the cognitive development of a typical 12-year-old is not super advanced. They're not real good reasoners on many levels. And yet they do have these rights to make their own decisions. And so I think there's a tendency to set a higher bar for people with disabilities and expect a higher level of function than we might have for the typically developing adolescent. There's also the assumption of a lack of interest in or access to romantic and sexual interactions. And this is absolutely not the case for youth with disabilities, just as it's not the case for any young person. And there's the assumption of heterosexuality. If the provider does see the young person through the frame of an adolescent who has sexual desires and needs and interests, they tend to assume heterosexuality. Again, not so different from what we do often with all adolescents, but maybe even more of a barrier for youth with disabilities. So disability, as we sort of touched upon earlier, can encompass a huge variety of different conditions and appearances. But what are some specific health issues that are common to people or adolescents with disabilities that a clinician might see in their practice? So what often brings the youth into care is either parental concerns regarding sexuality, sexual expression, sexual behaviors, concerns about what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. My child is, you know, flirting, interested in, they're not able, they should be protected. So a lot of parental concerns will bring the youth into care with the assumption that the provider is going to be able to make sense of this and set things, quote, straight, right, on the, quote, right path. There's also many medication issues that providers should be very aware of, both in terms of drug interactions with different forms of contraception or other treatments that they might prescribe, contraindications to certain treatments. For example, for individuals with mobility disabilities, you need to really consider ability to move independently, change position, and think about the risk of anything that might be prothrombotic, you know, which many of our contraception choices are. And then the issue of teratogenicity. Often, providers who are prescribing medications are not thinking of the young person as a sexual being, are not really thinking about their potential to get pregnant, and maybe prescribing a drug without fully describing the risks involved if the individual were to become pregnant. So these are some things to keep in mind. And finally, 
issues with menstrual management. Many adolescents have issues with having their periods, their periods being too long, too short, too frequent, too far apart, or not wanting to have periods at all. For youth with disabilities, there are often significant behavioral concerns. If the individual has spasticity, women with spasticity tend to have higher rates and discomfort with their spasticity during their menstrual period. And managing bleeding for youth with intellectual disabilities, and often for youth with physical disabilities, if they have any kind of spasticity or tightness, is a real issue for both the young person and for their caregivers. And so again, this may be a big reason that youth come into a family planning setting is for something to manage their periods. Generally, the idea is bleed less and less often. To start to take a look at perhaps the typical appointment, the typical clinic, and going from that social model of disability you mentioned, are there some environmental or structural elements that clinicians might be able to address that would make the clinical setting more user-friendly and adolescent-friendly for those adolescent patients with visible and invisible disabilities? Sure. There's a lot of things we can do to create a more welcoming environment. And again, for all our adolescent clients, these this is important and particularly for our adolescent clients who are more marginalized for any set of reasons. So having explicit visible statements of welcome to people of all identities and all levels of ability is an important place to start. Having visual representations, people, not just like a little wheelchair symbol, but you know, people who maybe look a little different from the typically developing individual, who hold their body differently, who have a different arrangement of their limbs. All of these things are very affirming when a young person can see some reflection of themselves in the environment they're walking into. Having clearly marked functional access for people with mobility disabilities. And when I say functional, that means like don't pile boxes in the corner of that really nice large bathroom because the reason that bathroom is big is because wheelchairs need 36 inches to turn around. You need to be able to maneuver in there. It's a very typical storage area. Wide hallways, large rooms, and bathrooms. We're always short on some place to put those boxes, don't put them in areas that are going to impede access for uh, particularly for individuals with mobility disabilities. Having options in the waiting period for a low stimulus environment. So waiting rooms can be very hectic, very noisy, very stimulating, and very anxiety producing. And so being aware that you may need an option with an area that has less visual or auditory stimulation during the time that an individual is waiting to be seen. Having a range of approaches to and materials for health education, so written, pictorial, audio, visual, digital options, because everyone learns in different ways, and this is particularly important for youth with disabilities. Having a routine policy for ascertaining what the client's preferred and accessible learning supports are. Making sure you have appropriate equipment, adjustable height tables, scales that can weigh an individual who has a mobility disability, transfer boards because people don't always remember to bring theirs with them, pillows for propping, a range of sizes of specula because you may need to use a smaller specula and different positioning for someone who has a mobility disability, and the ability to schedule double slots. Interacting with individuals with disabilities often takes more time, more time for positioning, more time for communication. And so being able to create an environment where neither the provider feels rushed through, nor does the individual who's seeking care or their family member or caregiver who's with them. 
I'm the parent of a 23-year-old with cerebral palsy who's a wheelchair user. And I know we kind of save everything up because just getting to the clinic and going through that whole process, it's challenging. You know, transportation is challenging. Access is challenging. Transfers are challenging. So we'll save up a whole lot of issues for one visit. And then if you walk in the door and you're greeted with, okay, we have 10 minutes. What do you want to take care of today? It really doesn't meet the needs of that client or their support. And that brings us really well to our next question. Again, going back to that kind of how to set up a welcoming clinic visit, are there some specific questions or statements that perhaps the person scheduling or the medical assistant who does the initial intake can say that would help prepare other clinical staff for necessary accommodations during the visit? So that's a great question. And I think it's really important to start at the front end, which is not when the client gets there, but when the client or family member or caregiver makes the appointment. And you want to normalize that aspect of the interaction by sort of framing it in terms of we want to make sure that we can take the best possible care of you and meet your needs. So I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask. So what are the questions? Does the client need assistance with transfers? Will they have someone accompanying them to assist or will they need staff to assist so that you can schedule staff appropriately? If you have a client who needs help getting, for example, out of their wheelchair and onto the exam table, that is time consuming and you need to know what you're doing so that you protect them and yourself and you need to be able to plan for that. Does the client need extra time or assistance for form completion, the interview, the exam, a health education interaction? So again, you can plan and time accordingly and not be rushing the client through the visit and not be able to really meet all of their needs. Are there any special environmental concerns? For example, a low stimulation waiting environment. I had a client who had a syndrome that really led to a lot of claustrophobia. He was really unable to be in the exam room. So his caregiver would wait out in the waiting area, take him for a walk, etc. We would beep him, you know, call on the phone when we were ready. He'd go straight into the room, have his clinical interaction and leave. So are there those kinds of considerations that you need to think about in order to create a less stressful and anxiety producing visit for everybody? And importantly, does the client use any kind of communication device or other tools to communicate and ask them to bring them with them? Often the assumption is that their interpreter, mother, father, sister, caregiver is going to be in the room 100% of the time and can serve as their communication device. We don't want other people serving as the communication device. If they have something they use in general to interact at school or in the community, they should bring that with them so that it can be used in the visit. Great. And now we are here in the exam room. We've got our patient up on the table safely. They're comfortable. And then there's the issue of confidentiality. That's an issue with all adolescent clients. But how can confidentiality and autonomy of those adolescent patients with disabilities especially be honored since they're even more likely to have a parent or another care with them at the appointment? And how can clinicians respectfully involve that family member or care if that's the patient's preference or need. 
That's a great question. First off, let's not get them on the exam table until we've done all the talking we need to talk so that you minimize the time up there because exam tables are actually quite narrow and many clients with balance or mobility issues feel very uncomfortable up on the table. So let's say, but we are in the exam room, we're sitting there, we're talking, how do you really negotiate this? So it's not really too different than any other adolescent parent or caregiver interaction. You want to be inclusive of the accompanying individual, but you want to focus the interaction on the client, which in this case is the youth with disabilities. You want to direct all your questions to the client, take your time and work to understand if their speech is difficult to understand, use their communication device if they have one, if it's appropriate. Follow your usual standard of seeing the client alone unless it's inappropriate. So what makes it inappropriate? If you have a client who's profoundly disabled, nonverbal, is not able to really express themselves or communicate with individuals outside of their small circle, and it's going to be counterproductive. For example, you suggest having uh, the parent or caregiver leave the room and the client becomes visibly anxious or is more like you would see with a pediatric patient, a younger child grabbing onto their parent or caregiver, not wanting them to go. And, you know, this doesn't have to happen at this visit. We can build a relationship over time. Maybe we'll get there. Maybe it will never be appropriate. You really have to be guided by the client's needs and their level of comfort. But to the extent you can ask the client and take clues from the client-parent interaction as to where you're going to go with this and how you're going to do it. And I always, with clients that I don't know, I at least give it a try. So, you know, we'll establish, listen to the parent, engage with the youth, kind of take the temperature of the room, see how things are going, and explain that sooner or later, that parent or caregiver isn't going to be able to be in the room. You know, time passes, people age, lives change, and adolescents become adults, and they may not want their parent or caregiver in the room, and they need to build the skills, just like typically developing adolescents need to build the skills to interact with the healthcare delivery system. And the best way to learn that is to practice. And so this is a safe space to practice those skills. You also want to clearly define for the parent or caregiver what will be shared and what won't be shared. And that's no different than any other adolescent. Information that the minor can consent to the services, information that is shared in confidence should remain in confidence. Outside of confidentiality and autonomy, what are some of the challenges a clinician might face in providing care to an adolescent with physical disabilities, and how can they address those challenges? We touched on it briefly earlier, but if you could elaborate more. So I think the big issues are access, safety, and comfort. And by comfort, I mean not just physical comfort, but emotional comfort as well. So being prepared to address transfers, having staff that is trained, and we've included some resources so that clinics can kind of engage or individuals can engage in self-training or arrange to have a training. I trained as a nurse before I trained as a nurse practitioner. I learned how to do transfers because we did care in hospital-based care environments. Many physicians don't learn how to do transfers because it's not their job, right? Somebody else does that. So you need to make sure that you have the right people in the room and that you have the right equipment in the room. For transfers, for positioning, 
remembering that with spasticity, for example, what you see with many brain-based disabilities or hypotonia, which you'll see often with spinal cord injuries, pelvic exams take extra time. They take a different skill set. You need to be creative and you need to be aware of the variety of positions that you might want to try so that the client is comfortable and you can see what you need to see and, you know, gather the specimens you need to gather and do the exam you need to do. You know, leave that extra time, develop skills, anticipate the challenges, and make sure that you have appropriate equipment. What are some of the challenges a clinician might face in providing care to an adolescent with developmental or cognitive disabilities? And how might that clinician address those challenges? So, Keep in mind everything we just discussed because people don't fit into these neat little boxes. So many people with developmental disabilities may have most significant mobility disabilities, may have most significant intellectual disabilities, may have a combination of those two things. So you may need to be considering both of these issues. But for people with intellectual disabilities, developmental disabilities, issues of access to information, autonomy, and comfort are really the salient concerns. And again, extra time, extra time for communication and relationship building, not feeling pressured as a clinician to rush through this and get everything done now. I have spent numerous sessions with young people with intellectual disabilities, showing them, you know, I get up on the table, I show them where I put my feet, of course, dressed. Um, I show them what we do with the drape. I show them all the equipment. We talk about it. They handle everything. They look at it, but they don't do the exam that visit. We talk about what they might need in, in order to have that kind of an exam. And then we arrange to have the people they need in the room, the equipment they need in the room, the music they need in the room, whatever it is, that's going to make them feel comfortable. The distraction, many young people will like to you know, look at a phone or look at a screen, and that's a good distraction for them in these environments. So really thinking about all of those things. Challenge your own assumptions about the client's abilities and interests. Make sure that you have low literacy materials and be aware that often we count on schools to provide basic sexuality education. In California, many of our school districts use an inclusion approach. So children in special education are included in the general ed classroom. But when it comes to sexuality education, they take them out of the classroom because they're not able to participate or benefit in the same way that typically developing youth can. And then there's nothing substituted for that. And so you may have a young person who has very little to know information about their own body, about their body function, about sexual and reproductive health and function. So you're going to need to really be prepared to provide or facilitate access to basic hygiene, development, and sexuality education. Finally, what else should a clinician be aware of when they see an adolescent or young adult client with disabilities in their clinic? So youth with disabilities really face the same issues and concerns as youth without disabilities, plus all of the things that are unique to their managing, moving through life and developing as a young person with a disability. So all of those things that we are prepared for and think about with any of our adolescent clients, we should be prepared for and think about with our clients who have disabilities. As I mentioned before, menstrual management is a very common issue that brings youth into family planning environments. So develop your skills, know the options, be prepared to you know have a resource so you can look up any medication interactions before prescribing any method that you might use for menstrual suppression. And that's usually where you're headed is menstrual suppression. Because again, 
again, because of the physical management and the hormonal impact of cycling, many people with disabilities prefer not to. Remember that youth with dis- and young adults with disabilities are sexual beings like all people, and they need sexual and reproductive health care. They don't just need refusal skills. They need skills around saying yes, as well as skills around saying no. So focus on healthy relationships, consent, and self-empowerment. Talk with young people about their rights and their responsibilities and their ability to say yes as well as no. And be creative and flexible because that's essential to delivering quality care. This has been great, but obviously it's just a taster of what all goes into providing care for patients with disabilities in family planning. Where are some other places clinicians can go for guidance or advice in caring for their adolescent clients? So there's a great resource called Table Manners and Beyond. It was written in 2001. So some of the language is not as inclusive as language we now use. There's pretty much nothing around gender in there at all. And it's a great resource for the physical management of people with mobility disabilities in in terms of reproductive health care. So it's a really great resource if you really don't know too much or remember much about transfers, the use of transfer boards, positions that can be used for pelvic exams, handles up, handles down, you know, with the speculum, those kinds of issues. It's very concrete. It's well illustrated and it's super useful. You just have to look at it through the lens of sort of a historical document. The federal government has a website called Got Transition. It's gottransition.org. It has a lot of resources on it. It has an adolescent focus and really is addressing that issue of transition from pediatric to adult care in the family planning setting. That isn't, you know, it depends on where the services are being delivered. So if they're being delivered in a pediatric client, this is going to be something that really needs to be looked at. But everyone will have transitions in their healthcare and often they'll have transitions in their payer source. They may go from private to public insurance. And so making sure that you're thinking about those things, Got Transition is a great resource. And finally, Elevate Us, a sexuality education for people with disabilities. It is an excellent training resource. People with disabilities have been involved in the development and leadership of this organization. They have self-studies, they have trainings, they have face-to-face trainings, they have online trainings, and it's all around sexuality education for people with disabilities. So if you're in a family planning clinic where you have a health educator, for example, or even a team of health educators, or social workers, it might be great to get some people trained. Wonderful. Well, this has been a fascinating and informative conversation, Erica, but unfortunately, our time is starting to run short. But before you go, what are your top takeaways for clinicians going forward about caring for adolescents with disabilities? I would say first and foremost, talk to the source, get to know people with disabilities and facilitate their ability to inform their own care. If you have a youth advisory board in your clinical service delivery system, make sure that you're recruiting youth with disabilities to participate in that board. View the care of youth with disabilities through the lens of adolescent care, seeing them as having the same needs and concerns and preoccupations that all youth bring to the family planning setting. Educate yourself regarding the special need appropriate for people with disabilities and be creative and flexible because that's what will get you through in the end. Thank you so much for joining us today, Erica, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. For more content, including previous podcast episodes. Search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, 
Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 1 FPTPA 006031-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for any opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files. (laughs) 